This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Alice Brennan here, and welcome to Background Briefing for another week. Victoria has set a new record for the number of deaths from coronavirus. Another sombre day in Victoria's battle with coronavirus. Mystery cases, 49 cases where we simply cannot track back. Where did it start? Where did those people get it from? The Victoria New South Wales border will be closed. 300 new cases. 403 new cases. 532 new coronavirus cases. Melbourne was in the grips of a long, dark winter, locked inside and ravaged by the second wave of COVID. That's when our reporter Ashlyn McGee first heard from a trainee nurse called Rob. He was working inside an aged care home. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's just... It's just been a rough few days. So, Ash... This tape, Rob recorded it in the car park just before his shift. Why is this the first time we're hearing it? Well, Alice, some of what he described to me, it was just, like, it was so horrific, it was barely believable. And after we recorded the interview, Rob decided he didn't want me to use it because I think at the time it was all just too traumatic and too fresh. It's just been really overwhelming. Just, yeah. 45 residents from that aged care home ended up dying and it turned out to be the deadliest site of COVID-19 infection in the whole country. And now Ash Rob has changed his mind about that tape. He wants people to actually hear it. Yeah, that's right. And it's because we've really only heard one part of the story about that aged care home, some basils. People need to know there's more going on here than a COVID outbreak. It was inevitable that this virus would spread through this place, but it's the severe neglect that's just occurred. So since I spoke to Rob all those months ago, I've been looking into what he said. And this investigation, it's taken me all the way to the largesse at the top of one of Australia's biggest churches, into this messy web of taxpayer funds flowing in and out of aged care homes. And, you know, for me, this isn't so much a story about the outbreak at St Basil's, but it's about what was happening before and about what's happened since. You'll hear more from that trainee nurse, Rob, later. But first, Ash, take us back to before the outbreak. Tell me about this aged care home, St Basil's. Okay, so St Basil's is tucked away at the end of a road in Faulkner, which is a suburb about half an hour north of Melbourne. It's on this big open block right by Mary Creek, which I know sounds nice, but really it looks more like this grass-covered floodplain with factories and industrial estates off in the background. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? We haven't done awfully well with the rain, have we? You weren't wrong about it, though. (laughs) It's a drizzly Melbourne day when I meet up with Spiros Vasilakis outside St Basil's. His mum, Maria, lived here. You know, I know that this is the place that didn't look after my mum. That's what sits with me. That's what sits with me. Um, There are some signs over here, you know, of a different place. Like right now we're looking into their um, front yard here, their grass area, and you can see the birds, I don't know what they are, herons. Ibis. Ibis, sorry. Everywhere. (laughs) Ibis. Well, you know, there were crows here, ravens and crows um, from the pandemic onwards. You know, like like an omen, um, if you like, but that's all there was. St Basil's is laid out like an asterisk with five wings off a central hub. 
there's weeds up against the fence. You can see the building, you know, could do with a with a painting there, you know, front. But inside, it's, it's worse. Yeah. Uh, when it's I say worse move, inside. Yeah, it's it's um it's like you're stepping into something from the late 70s, 80s. Yeah. It's nothing okay. um nothing um modern. It is not plush. Okay. This place here um it was solely picked by whether it be the families of the residents or the residents themselves, as in my case, my mum chose this because of its Greek based community and its orthodox um, religion, Greek orthodox religion. Spiros shows me this video from a family dinner a few years back. His mum Maria is in her slippers and she's bouncing from side to side doing this hand jive dance before throwing her hands in the air to cheers from her family. They just love it. But there was no big family celebration on the 10th of July last year when Maria turned 81. Spiros has a video from that day too. His sister Theodora knocks on the window at St Basil's to wish Maria a happy birthday. The home's in lockdown and families aren't allowed inside. Two days earlier, a staff member had tested positive to COVID. Behind the glass, these two staff members hand Maria a bunch of flowers and this big box of Ferrero Rocher chocolates. They're smiling as they help her to the window, but incredibly, neither are wearing masks, gloves, nor any other PPE. COVID is already spreading inside the home. Within a week, Maria tests positive, and just six days after that, she dies. Clary Lutus also chose some basils for her mum, Philia Zinodakis because it was Greek. They had Greek music playing in one area. They had um, a Greek TV shows running in another area. It's run by the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. Many of the staff spoke Greek, they served some Greek food, and they even celebrated Greek holidays. It sounds almost like a little mini Greece in there. It was, it was. So it was very uh, comforting to know that the cultural aspects were embraced and promoted within St Basil's, and that's why we chose St Basil's. Then COVID hit, and as more and more bad news poured out of the facility, Clary struggled to get any updates on her mum. Then one day, she received this phone call telling her she and her dad, George, they better come fast. They took a video. Billia's lying in bed motionless, her eyes flicking open and closed. And then this is Dad trying to get her attention. Oh, you the messages. <laughs> he doesn't realise that I'm just videotaping them. As Clary and I watch the video, her dad's talking, so Clary starts translating for me. My sweetheart. Sweetheart. Open your eyes so I can see them. Let me see. No? Why not? Have them open so I can see them. My sweetheart. My sweetheart. Yes, my sweetheart. They're sending you kisses. (laughs) This is where I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this time. Don't close your eyes, Mum. Hey. Look how flush she is. 
Clary's mum, Philia, was moved to a private hospital, but it was too late. She died on the 14th of August. Not from COVID, she never tested positive, but because amongst the mayhem, no one fed her or helped her drink water. It wasn't St Basil's staff who failed to feed her. By that point, they'd been ordered out of the facility by the chief medical officer and replaced by these contractors from Aspen Medical. But the Aspen staff had walked into this storm of chaos. Missing medical records, clinical waste everywhere, and total stonewalling from St Basil's. The problem started with the way the home was run. Remember that video of Spiros's mum, where the staff weren't wearing any masks or PPE? Well, that was two days after St Basil's first positive case. The response you get, you know, the federal government didn't tell us to, that's, that's lame, that's pathetic. You shouldn't be in that job. If you need someone to hold your hand at a time like that, all right, you shouldn't be there. Spiros noticed other indications that things weren't right at St Basil's. My sister had gone to visit Mum and it happened to be around about dinner time and they were serving party pies and uh, little sausage rolls uh, for dinner. Was that all they were serving for dinner? Serving. That's all they were serving. Just party pies and sausage rolls on a plate. No salad or veggies, nothing, just that. That was was their dinner. Spiros says when his sister called to complain, she reached a senior manager. Whose uh, initial response to the complaint was, well, at least it's not dog food. That's one. And then she goes on to say, oh, they're used to it because, you know, they used to work in factories. Spiros also says St Basil's had an old-school approach to paperwork and documentation. We're living in 2021. There is no such thing as old-school aged care. That's, That's my take on it. This is 2021. If we've got aged care providers living in the past or running their place as in the past, then they shouldn't be doing it. They shouldn't be in that business. And when the outbreak hit, well, that's when it became a problem. It was just mayhem here. I walked in, uh, we didn't have resident information, we didn't have their medical history. That's Rob again. He's the trainee nurse working inside St Basil's, the guy who started this whole investigation. When Rob and the other contractors from Aspen arrived in the middle of the outbreak, they couldn't even identify residents. They didn't know who was COVID positive, let alone what their medical and dietary needs were. He found it traumatic. Uh, yeah, sorry. I haven't had much I haven't had much sleep for since I started here. I just can't switch off from it. Rob and I are FaceTiming and he looks exhausted. He pulls his mask up over his mouth and walks across the St Basil's car park to start another shift. Oh, no, I think I'm all right. I'm just... I'm, I'm getting anxious as I as I walk towards the door, yeah. Listening back now, I hear myself repeatedly checking his OK because it was just so clear he was right in the middle of trauma. And instead of walking away, he was heading back into the thick of it. And so I discovered a resident that had a, a catheter bag attached to the resident's leg and when I pulled the bedding back to do a full assessment of the person and discovered this bag, it was on the verge of exploding. It was so full uh, 
and the color was of the urine was almost black. Uh, just something that had not been attended to. This resident passed away probably 24 hours later. Uh, then another resident also with a catheter that hadn't been attended to possibly for a week or two. And the infection is the worst infection I've ever seen on a person in my life. The infection was so severe that I felt like the person was rotting, literally. Sorry, I just need a moment. He told me basic safety equipment was missing. And at this point, we were months into the pandemic. They stood no chances. Like I said, there's no hand washing facilities. And I would say there was a lack of PPE. Otherwise, throughout the facility, like there's no, was no hand sanitizers hanging on the walls, no gloves. The only equipment that's there is what the government brought in and we've had to set up on tables and clinical waste was everywhere. Like it was on the floor in the hallways, like going completely against all infection control procedures. And no one could find a working paging system. So when residents press their call bell for assistance, nothing. They had no bed sensors, no equipment. I don't know how they operate. So you would literally wouldn't know if a resident was on the floor unless you actually went into a room. How they've allowed this to happen like, these are people, no respect, no dignity. St Basil's tells me no one from the organisation can comment because it's being sued over the deaths. I ask Spiros what he makes of it all. I think it goes back to, um, you know, it's a, a money spinner. That's all it was. When I look at it and I see, you know, 45 people dead because of pure negligence, OK, all of that points to... Um, just they didn't care. A money spinner. But for who? It's June 2019 and thousands of adoring fans have packed the streets in Sydney's Surrey Hills. A middle-aged man with this greying, wiry beard emerges from a dark car. He's draped in this regal, floor-length purple gown, rich with all of this gold embroidery. He's swamped by the waiting crowds. Sorry, lady in the blue dress, you need to go. An older lady weeps and crosses herself. Until the end of my life, I belong to Australia. This is Archbishop Makarios, the new leader of Australia's Greek Orthodox community, 
and at schools, parishes and aged care homes, including St Basil's in Melbourne. He's not just a religious leader. He's also deeply involved in the church-run entities. He appoints board members or he sits on the boards himself. And he has these extraordinary powers to make executive decisions. So a year into the job, as the outbreak rages inside St Basil's Melbourne-aged care home, Archbishop Makarios addresses a crowd inside a Sydney church. Tonight, His Eminence shall graciously share his scientific expertise and spiritual wisdom through a much-anticipated introduction to bioethics. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you very much, Christo, for your kind words and for the introduction. You heard right. He delivers a lecture on bioethics at the same time St Basil's is in the absolute thick of the crisis. Scientific. Four months later, he releases another video, telling his congregation what a hard time it's been for everyone. My much-suffering brothers and sisters in Christ in Melbourne and Victoria, Without a doubt, it has been a very difficult time for you, but also for us. It was about to get a whole lot more difficult because whispers were spreading about the Archbishop's lifestyle. He was arriving at parishes in this black Holden caprice with tinted windows and a new personalised number plate, ArchBM, for Archbishop Makarios. And his lavish ceremonial gowns were hard to miss. He had about a dozen of them in these really vivid hues, made of silk and wool with this rich gold embroidery and layered with all of this heavy gold jewellery. I'm told they cost up to $30,000 a set. I asked the church about these luxuries and they sent me a statement saying, my questions were discourteous and ill-founded and they wouldn't comment. And then there's the apartment. Just six months after arriving in Australia, the Archdiocese bought the Archbishop a $6.5 million luxury Sydney pad as his official residence. Good morning, Ash. Morning, Sean. How are you? Yeah, not too bad this morning. You're sounding very bright for the early start. I've just had a coffee. I'm in Melbourne, so I've asked my colleague Sean Hassett to go and check out the Sydney apartment. You're there already? Yeah, so I'm here. What's it like there? Well, to get here, you have to walk past this great view of the Harbour Bridge just as it goes over to North Sydney. And I can imagine the view up there would be pretty sweet. Uh, I wouldn't mind it on New Year's Eve. And what's the building itself like? When you look at the entrance, it's quite fancy at the front. You've got a nice arch. There's a a bust of a, of a lady with bare breasts just as you walk through the door. So it's, it's clearly going for a kind of upmarket sort of person. Looking at the real estate ad online, this place is luxe. It has these sweeping views of the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. It's huge and modern, but the Archbishop wanted it renovated. And two sources tell me those renovations cost another $3 million, on top of the $6.5 million already spent. When the church community got wind of all of this, it caused a furor. The Archbishop was supposed to have taken a vow of poverty. In response, the church said the Archbishop wouldn't live there, but I've been told otherwise, so I asked Sean to keep an eye out. I'm driving to the office when Sean calls. So, yes, it was just after about uh, 8 o'clock, we saw a Holden Black Statesman 
the giveaway was a little slag on the front of the bonnet. Uh, drive into the car park here, and it had, it had the number plates, uh, the personalised plates. Uh, all happened very quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his, uh, his car is in the building. I ask Sean to stay put to see what happens. Ten minutes later, my phone rings again. We've just seen the car leave. But it's gone out a different entrance. Oh, did you see? So, did you see? Was yeah. he in the car? Uh, no, no way. It was because it was literally it was, you know, a good twenty-five meters away. Okay, so what we know basically is that we saw his that car. That is one hundred percent his car. Yep, his car came into the car park about eight o'clock, and it left probably like ten minutes later. Is that what you reckon? That's right. Yeah, my my assumption is that it may have been a chauffeur come to pick him up, and then he's he's come down out of the apartment and come out the uh, the back way. No one from the Archdiocese would do an interview, but in an email they confirmed the Archbishop did move into the apartment earlier this year. And the renovations, well, they say they were paid for by a private donor. But there's something else. This rumour I keep hearing again and again, that this $6.5 million apartment was actually paid for by St Basil's in Melbourne. I've tried every source I have, but no one has any solid evidence, just the same story. St Basil's is a charity, which means it has to submit financial reports to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. I wonder if there's anything in there. All right, let's take a look at this. I've killed off a few trees here to um, print the past eight financial years' worth of reports. Looks like it's got some pretty basic information in there. Um, What I'm looking for, though, is how much money is coming out of St Basil's and where that money is going to. Just on first glance, um, there's some headline figures, but, yeah, there's not an awful lot of, uh, of detail. I'm no expert, though, so I've called in some help. I'm going to try on WhatsApp just because I've got that sitting here. Is that all right? That's fine, yeah. Yeah, let's do this. Where can I balance that? Just in front of me there. This is Jason Ward from the Centre for International Corporate Tax Accountability and Research. It's quite a mouthful. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and I've been uh, analysing finances of uh, aged care nursing home companies in Australia for a number of years. I've sent Jason the documents to get his take on them. It's fairly minimal disclosure. Obviously, the one thing that uh, pops out immediately on the St. Basil's filings is the amount of rent that is paid to the church. St. Basil's has paid more than $21 million in rent over the past eight years to the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. One commercial real estate agent told us that's more than twice the market rate for a building like this. They are pretty large uh, payments to be transferred to the church. Are there any other forms of payments going out to the church? There are indeed. Uh, I mean, there are uh, in the filings, there are other uh, operating expenses which are never explained or classified. And what is disclosed is that uh, a portion of that is fees to the Greek Orthodox Church. And we have no idea uh, what those fees are for. Those fees fluctuate each year, but over the past eight years, they total more than a million dollars. There's some other weird stuff too, this mystery $100,000 grant awarded by the aged care home. 
and cash squirrelled away into term deposits. But there's no neon flashing lights pointing to a luxury apartment purchase. What is clear, though, is St Basil's has received a lot of money from the federal government in aged care funding. And a big chunk of its money, about $22 million, has been delivered straight back to the church, labelled as rent and fees. So taxpayers are subsidising the church? Taxpayers' money, which is intended to provide care for elderly Australians, is subsidising the church. The Greek Orthodox Church runs 14 other taxpayer-funded aged care homes dotted around the country. The three South Australian homes have pumped more than $9 million into the church over the same time. But we have no idea about the others. They haven't declared paying any money to the church in their financial records. Right in the middle of my investigation into St Basil's, something else really interesting lands. It's a report from the New South Wales corruption watchdog, ICAC. And there's an important name in there, Spiro Starvis. He's the acting CEO of St Basil's New South Wales and ACT, and he's been busted for corruption. Not in his current job, but in his old job at a Sydney council. St Basil's tells me they've asked Spiro Starvis to provide an official response to the corruption findings, and then they'll decide what to do. So why does any of this matter? Well, it seems St Basil's aged care homes, funded by taxpayers and run with all of the perks of charity status to look after older Greek people, are being milked of cash to finance the church and the lifestyle of Archbishop Makarios. Or, as one of my sources says, the Archdiocese views the homes as fat children and itself a starving mother owed its dues. And I can't help but wonder if the impact of that has been catastrophic in Victoria. Um, a lot of people have, uh, have said to me, oh, you know, St Basil's are at fault themselves. That's Clary Lutus again, whose mum, Philia, died in the outbreak. Do I fault them? Possibly, but I'm not sure. But there are lots of people here that need to be examined. Their role in getting the aged care sector prepared and how involved they were and how invested and how diligent their, their investigations and their checklists were. Most aged care homes in Australia are inspected and accredited by a regulator called the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. They give each home a star rating to help families decide where to send their loved ones. And critically, those stars equal cash, government cash. St Basil's was inspected and accredited in mid-2019 and the report was glowing. The home passed all eight standards with flying colours. Infection control, big tick. Quality meals, tick. Safety equipment and competent management, tick, tick. Spiros Vasilakis, whose mum Maria was also there, says St Basil's used its accreditation to rebuff any concerns that he raised. Yeah, we've just been accredited. That's what was thrown in my face. That was the only response I got thrown. And of course, you know, you're welcome to make your complaints. You know, sarcastic, it was like, you know, go ahead, do it. Training nurse Rob told me he was stumped by the accreditation. I guess what throws me is I don't understand how this facility passed their accreditation and being accredited till next year. It just 
I still can't get my head around it. It's place should be shut down. By the end of last year, the regulator seemed to agree. It issued this damning audit report failing the home on most criteria and warning, and I'm quoting here, of an immediate and severe risk to the safety, health or well-being of patients. And it said there'd be no more taxpayer money for new residents until the home cleaned up its act. Here's a thing I don't get, though. How did things change so drastically? For example, how was infection control given the big tick in mid-2019, but just 18 months later it found there were no readily available hand-washing stations and no wall-mounted sanitizers. I mean, these aren't the kinds of things a home would rip out. And if issues are being identified now that should have been identified two years ago, well, you need to go back to the regulator and say, well, how, why did you pass them? How was it that they... We granted the accreditation and the funding if you're identifying issues that may have been around two years ago. I did go to the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commissioner, Janet Anderson, to ask that very question. But her spokesman told me she wasn't available for an interview. Instead, I got this long statement that we've posted on our website. Basically, it says the accreditation process was robust, but that as a result of the pandemic infection prevention controls were strengthened. In other words, they got tough. So with no interview from the regulator, I've tracked down the next best thing, a whistleblower. My name's Michelle. I've worked in the aged care industry for over 30 years as a a unit manager, facility manager, uh, an auditor as well for the Aged Care Safety Commission for 17 years. I'll only use Michelle's first name because it's a small industry and she wants to speak openly about what auditing was like. Did you ever feel like aged care homes were able to conceal things or um, gloss over and and make things look better than they were? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a well-known fact prior, particularly prior to the unannounced, that there were um, procedures in place when accreditation was due to make sure that the gardens were all well maintained, there were extra staff, um, that documentation had been really up to date and that was definitely the way it used to be. Now, they still can gloss over it, but I guess it's not as easy. However, having said that, the process now is still superficial. In early August last year, I started wondering what the regulator was up to, so I lodged a Freedom of Information request for details of their internal meetings and communication with the federal government. By that stage, 313 people had died from COVID, many of them in aged care homes, and the infection, it was spreading fast. I received 318 pages of almost entirely redacted documents. Only a couple of pages were readable. Okay, let's give Anne a call. I'll just type her number in here. Where are we? Anne Connolly. I decide to send the FOI documents to my ABC colleague Anne Connolly. She's this formidable reporter who's been covering aged care failures for years now. 
Oh, hi, Anne. It's Ash McGee here. How are you? Hello, Ash. I thought it would be you. I'm fine. How's it going? I want her to cast an eye over them. Of course, once I looked at your the documents that you received, I mean, there's absolutely nothing. Everything has been redacted. You, you can't make head or tail of it. But then Anne tells me these documents might solve a mystery she's been pondering for months. She and a bunch of other journalists had noticed the department spent this huge sum on lawyers to deal with an FOI. But no one knew whose FOI it actually was. So when you sent me the email with your FOI documents, I was curious because we had already been investigating um, a charge that the aged care regulator had made, um, getting legal advice on an FOI request from the ABC. I think this raised the attention of the press gallery in particular because it was such a huge amount. So it was my FOI request that they'd spent nearly $30,000 on. I ask Anne why she thinks they did that. Considering you were asking questions about a really sensitive issue which had been raised at the Royal Commission, which was how prepared was the government and the Department of Health and the regulator for COVID-19. And so I think that this FOI and the legal advice they got on it was because they did not really want that information out there. Like it's something that they clearly wanted to keep secret. Well, yeah, they, they obviously it's very sensitive information if they spent that much money. The regulators told me they paid for the advice to ensure the legally robust release of the documents as quickly as possible because they knew there was a public interest. One thing the documents do show is at the end of June, just days before COVID crept into St Basil's, the Commissioner Janet Anderson emailed Australia's Chief Health Officer saying she'd be surprised if any aged care homes needed reminding about infection control procedures. Remember at this time, St Basil's staff weren't wearing any PPE. She wrote in the email, My sense is aged care providers are already on high alert. But they clearly weren't, and the aged care regulator might not have been either. Because the documents also show that during the height of the outbreak in Victorian aged care homes, they were only holding a meeting about their COVID response once a week for an hour. I've asked the regulator about this, and they say they were having many, many conversations about COVID in addition to those few meetings. It seems they just weren't documented. So exactly what they were doing during COVID is still a little unclear. I asked the former auditor, Michelle, what she'd observed. I think they were quite absent. That's my experience. It may not be others, but it's definitely my experience. There was certainly a regulatory oversight, but in terms of assistance on site, I don't think that they were present. Do you think people can still have trust in the regulator? I think they've got a long way to go, to be honest. We've been at the same issues for over 20 years now and we keep putting the same people in charge of the regulators. That just changes the name. I think it's time for a fresh start and a new approach. You gave me a very funny face when I asked you that question. (laughs) What what, what did it mean? (laughs) With the regulators? Yeah. I've been working with the regulators now for 25 years. I actually don't think they really know what good quality care and services are.
It's still raining when Spiros and I wander back to our cars parked outside St Basil's. I don't feel anything. Mm. I don't feel anything, you know. Um, yeah, I don't feel anything. Um, just this place means nothing to me now. Um, you know, I came here to visit my mum. My mum was here. Um, this is where they were supposed to care for her. It just means nothing now because they didn't do anything. Mm. Right. This place, it's such an intersection of faith, culture and community. The Greek Orthodox Church really is at the heart of St Basil's. I can't help but wonder how Spiros feels about his church after all of this. Mine is, my faith at the moment is, um, as you can see, it's sitting on a balance. I can't say yes, I'm... um, I can't help going around saying that there is no God, to be honest with you. If I'm holding on to any religion, it's because of my mum. And I haven't let go because I feel like I'm betraying her. Not my religion. Betraying her. That's the only... Yeah, that's the only reason religion is still a part of me, um, because of my mum. And I might still have uh, faith in my religion, but not in its... um, not in its church or its representatives. Background briefing sound producers are Lila Schunner and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Timothy Jenkins. Fact-checking by Benjamin Sveen and Patrick Begley. Supervising producers are Tim Roxborough and Alex Mann. Our executive producer is Alice Brennan. And I'm Ashlyn McGee. You can subscribe to Background Briefing for free wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.